this is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. And boy, have we got a fascinating story today. But first, of course, I've been telling you constantly now about the dailygiving.org, where you give just $1 a day, pull together with thousands of others, over 7,000 other people, to donate every single day without thinking about it to highly vetted charitable organizations. One of the great things about this is you will learn about organizations and institutions you've never heard about before. Maybe ones like Ma'or. Okay, that's a joke, but that is my nonprofit in my main job. But incredible places that you otherwise would never learn about. And the founder, Jonathan Donath, spends his time, although he is a chiropractor by trade, researching and surfacing some incredible organizations and then vetting them thoroughly, running them by a rabbinic approval committee to make sure that they're up to snuff, that they're doing good work, that it's the kind of organization every Jewish person could feel comfortable donating to. And then he allows you the merit of participating as a contributor to that cause. So dailygiving.org, please sign up. I'm a donor and I hope you will be as well. And of course, I started out by teasing our guest and with good reason, because a lot of people were impacted by COVID, of course. That's an understatement. The entire world was impacted, dramatically so, and each of our lives were upended and transformed. But some people kind of went next level with that, and today's guest, Shari Wallach, literally ended up traveling the entire country, baking challah as a result of a mental crisis that she experienced and that she's very open about during COVID. And this experience prompted a lot of healing, a lot of learning, a lot of humorous anecdotes, basically couch surfing around the United States while baking challah and bringing joy and healing to herself and so many other people along the way. She recently wrote a book called From Hell to Challah and the true story, she mailed me a book along with a Hell to Challah spatula that I now use quite frequently in my kitchen and she really is just a joy and such an upbeat, lovely, wonderful personality and I really enjoyed meeting Sherry. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with From Hell to Hollow author and delightful personality, Shari Wallach. We are here with Shari Wallach, the author of From Hell to Hala. Maybe that's from Hell to Hala or from Hell to Hala. I don't know, but rising from fragile to fearless, one grain at a time. A really fascinating story of self-discovery and healing. Shari, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you? Doing amazing. Now it is Shari, right? Because it's S-H-A-R-I. You're so good. And I have to correct people so often because they'll say Sherry and I'll say it's Shari. They go, how do you spell that? And I say S-H-A-R-I. And they say, well, that's a really strange way to spell Sherry. I said, well, if it was Sherry, yeah, it would be. So <laughs> any Northeasterner, Jewish Northeasterner can say Shari. It's just taking my name Ari and putting an S-H in front. So 
And a lot of the people, my whole life, people have been saying, sure, Ari, so. <laughs> well, you know, if somebody can say marry, Mary and Mary as three separate words, then they can say Shari. But I've been saying for my entire life, Shari, like Shari Lewis. Only the younger generation has no idea who Shari Lewis is. So I have to come up with a new one. There we go. Well, fair enough. Anyway, uh, so take it from the top. We were talking a little bit offline about where you were born or where you grew up. Let our listeners know a little bit about that. Okay. So I was born in the Bronx. Very proud of that. And grew up on Long Island, went to college on Long Island. and Hofstra? Uh, no, Adelphi. Close. Went to Adelphi, was a communications major, and ended up actually dumping a career in broadcasting to work for Club Med, of all places. No way. I, well, my minor in school was French, and I loved the language. And I thought, well, if I go like hang at Club Med, I can really speak it. So I started a travel career. I I think I can tell you this because now we know each other really well. My first job was teaching snorkeling at Club Med in Haiti. I did that for a little bit. And then I worked for Club Med in their corporate office when I grew up (laughs) and um, did that for a little while. And then moved to Florida and got a job working in the cruise industry and then started my own business. And that's what kind of came crashing down on me during the beginning of COVID, because as everyone knows, the travel industry just took a nosedive. Absolutely. There was was no travel. Um, so yeah. So when you were uh, young, did you have much connection to the Jewish community on Long Island? I didn't really. And the problem was we belonged to a very conservative synagogue called New Hyde Park Jewish Center. And it was too too conservative for me. There was no humor. There was there were no stories. It was just by the book Judaism. And I didn't like it. So I, I ran away from it. I really did. I ran away from it. And I and my brothers were bar mitzvah. I really wasn't interested. But when I got married and had two children, we joined a great synagogue called Ramat Shalom in Plantation, Florida, a reconstructionist synagogue. And they made it fun. They made learning about Judaism, super fun. So I learned everything I know about Judaism, for the most part, by taking my kids to Jewish preschool. And that's how I learned about all the holidays and really connected myself and found that I really loved it. Wow. You know, to me, it's it's such a tragedy and a, and a shame that you were kind of led to perceive a more serious version of Judaism or a more, you know, intensive form of Judaism as incompatible with joy and, uh, and and I would say fun or at least pleasure enjoyment. And I, I don't think that's an uncommon conflation, but to me, ideally, e- even the most serious Judaism should be uplifting and engaging, you know, regardless of how, you know, quote unquote conservative it might be. Hopefully there are places that are doing a better job than that. Well, I think part of it was also that so much of it was in Hebrew and I didn't understand Hebrew. So I would just sit there and it went over my head completely. Right. And Ramat Shalom most of it's in English. The rabbi's really young. It, it was just, they made it so engaging and fun that my kids wanted to go. Right. Even bar and bat mitzvahs were great. They weren't hours on end. You know, it was 90 minutes to, to two hours and fun and engaging. And the other thing is they really include women so much in the process that mm-hmm. when I did, women just, you know, seen and not heard kind of thing. So yeah, it made a huge difference. And I really found a love for the traditions, the holidays, the cooking, everything. It really... It's, it means a lot to me. So did you stay in New York after Gabi? You sounds like you traveled around the world a little bit doing Club Med and things like that. Was New York still kind of like your home base though? I stayed in New York until I met my 
husband and we, I was living in a like 300 square foot apartment on the Upper East Side. And when we decided to get married, we thought, you know what, let's get out of here. I was still working for Club Med. I got recruited by a cruise line that doesn't exist anymore called Renaissance Cruises and um, worked for them for a little bit and then moved on to Celebrity Cruises. And I was um, running the incentive sales area and loved it. And then, you know, with two little kids, well, actually it was one little kid pregnant with the second and Celebrity Cruises had just been sold to Royal Caribbean. So I was in a unique situation where I was offered an opportunity to take the severance and leave or stick around and work for Royal Caribbean. And at that point in time, I think it was like they offered me $50,000. I thought it was more money than I would ever <laughs> see in my lifetime. Yeah. So I took the money. I went home. I had the second baby. And I started working for a local cruise broker. And then after five years of that, started my own company called By the Sea, and we were thriving and, and we were winning every award at the top of our game. I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable. And then COVID hit and that too was unbelievable in a totally different way. Right. And it was really, really hard. Like a lot of people identified myself with what I do for a living, which sure. is a common thing when you're in business for so many years. And I saw my identity completely slipping away. It was really challenging for me. Well, that sounds incredibly difficult. And I know that certainly you were not alone in that regard. COVID happened in March. March 11th was the day the world stopped, the day the cruise ship stopped sailing. And we were just, everyone in my industry, we were just in shock. And we spent the next several months renegotiating contracts we'd already sold, moving programs, refunding money. And for me, again, it's it was it's part of my identity that business was like my third child. I don't have the most fabulous coping skills on the planet to begin with. But as this started happening, every day I lost like a piece of myself. And I had my, my kids had just graduated, one in 2019, one in 2020 from Northwestern. And there was a lot of pressure on them to find their way in the world. And they were feeling that anxiety. Um, and I had my mom who was quarantining and going out of her mind. My dad is, is 90 years old. He and his wife were staying home in Long Island. And it was like everything, just put every day pushing in on me, pushing in on me. And then I had this staff of five people who make their living working for me. It's my responsibility to keep them, you know, paid and, and supporting their families. And Every day got worse for me. And as much as I tried to put on a happy face, now I was sitting there posting like happy pictures of my backyard and I would post happy thoughts and people would say to me, wow, you're dealing with this really well. But inside I was crumbling and I got to a point and I write about it in the book where my son said something that really any on any other day would have been completely innocuous. And it just sent me into my room with a backpack full of pills. And I wasn't going to take them. I just... That was my response, just to grab the pills, go in my room, close the door, take an Ambien, one Ambien, and just go to sleep. Because I thought, tomorrow has got to be a better day. I, I, can't, I can't stay in today anymore. And in the morning, when my girlfriend came to check on me, we talked about what had happened the last night and what my son said to me. And I just completely lost it. And I told her I wanted to die. I did. I said, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to deal with this anymore. 
this isn't going to play out well. And I don't want to see how it turns out. I just don't. I just want to just go. And I was in a pool of tears and she did what probably was the right thing. She called her ex-husband, who's a cop. And, you know, she said, what do I do? And he said, let me come and check on her. And she said, no. And he said, all right, you know what? I'll send the plantation police to come and look in on her. But that's not what happens in Florida. They don't look in on you. They Baker Act you, which is a mandatory 72-hour hold in a hospital or a mental facility. And I guess, you know, that's the right thing to do. But when the five police officers were in my house and standing over me with guns around their waist, you know, that was made it even worse. And I ended up in the hospital and I spent three days, I spent three days reflecting and realizing, looking around me that I'm not crazy. I, maybe I just needed a timeout. And it was, it was an awful situation, but it was an important situation for me to A, see what happens when you say, I want to kill myself, which I'll never do again. And to see how broken the mental health industry is. I mean, I was in there for three days and I don't think anyone asked me what happened and why I was there. And there was really no help. It was just basically, you're going in timeout until you calm down. And then after we don't help you, we're going to send you back onto the street. You know, so if I really was suicidal, I would have still been suicidal at that point. But I learned a lesson from that and I got home and I made a decision. And basically that's the hell to holla. Do I stay in hell, which was torture being in that house? Or do I find a path to freedom, freedom from my house, freedom from my head, freedom from what was going on in my industry? Can I find that by just getting away, which was usually my escape anyway, because I'm in the travel business. So I packed a, ba- a carry-on bag and I went to my brothers in New Jersey for what I thought would be like a long weekend, maybe a week. And as I got there, I realized that a few days wasn't going to fix what was going on. And maybe irresponsibly or maybe really responsibly, I took this 95-day journey around the country. And you'll, you'll understand this because you're a rabbi, that accidentally or not, I went to 18 different places. I did not plan 18. It was just when I ended, it happened to be 18. And I ended up visiting not Jews, which was weird. I wasn't visiting Jews. Most of them were Mormons and Christians and people who had never seen or heard of Ahala. And I was visiting friends and clients, some former clients, some current clients. And my way of getting out of the anxiety was baking. And I wasn't a baker. I I never baked challah, really. I'm a disaster in the kitchen. But I started putting my nervous energy into challah and making traditional challah, chocolate challah, rainbow challah, nut challah, anything that I could do that was creative. I just started baking them for, for people. And the response was unbelievable, especially with the Mormons. They loved it. They were all over it. They couldn't get enough of it. And they're really, they're amazing people. Their sense of family, you know, we can say what we want about the religion and people can say what they want about ours, honestly, but their sense of community and family is unbelievable. If we could take a piece of what they do, like Monday night family night, where they get together and play games, it's beautiful. Anyway, so when I was baking challah, like, what else you got? 
And I'm like, well, I can do blintzes. They're like, let's have them. I can do bolognese sauce that my mom taught me. I can do mussels. I can do linguine with clam sauce. I can do brisket. I started pulling out every recipe from my childhood except tuna noodle casserole, which I thought was disgusting back then. And it probably is today. But I started doing all of these recipes and sharing it. And I ended up at this time of year at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur with like Gentiles. Like it was fun sharing the prayers and the history. I was so joyful doing that, that I kind of healed myself. And I know that sounds crazy because, you know, I have anxiety anyway, and I still do to a point, but sharing that with other people got me through and got me to the other side. And Hala is my metaphor for happy. So I went from hell to happy or hell to Hala on this 95 day journey. And that's really, that's the story. And it's filled with a lot of humor. It's filled with a lot of food and a lot of reflection on how to pull yourself out when you're feeling crappy. And it doesn't have to be Hala. It could be anything, but you have it inside of you to pull yourself out. You have to find something that takes you from this really dark place to something happy. And that's this, that's really what the story is about. How did your children react when you kind of wanted, first of all, when you were committed to this uh, facility? And then after that, when you wanted to kind of take off? So the kids were, were all over me. They were, kids were very demanding and, and on top of me when all of this happened. So when I reacted to them, I guess they were kind of shocked because I'm, Sometimes I'm pretty meek around my kids because I let them run the show and I kind of want to give into their demands, which I shouldn't. And when I like exploded back, you know, I think they were kind of like, whoa, you know, what's up with her? And my daughter took it really hard when the police showed up because she was really all about like defund the police, you know, (laughs) like she can't handle cops in general. So when the cops showed up, that really just pissed her off. And when they wanted to take me to the hospital, Rachel's my daughter, she said, mom, I want to take you. Can I take you to the hospital? And I said, okay. She's like, you can't sit in the back of a, a police car. You can't. So she, in my pajamas, she drove me to the hospital and the kids sat outside the hospital in the car. Like they were, they were a little flipped out and they went and they bought me lunch, which was allowed in but they had to take all my personal belongings away because in the hospital, they take away your cell phone, your clothes, your bra, like no bra, because you could hurt your, if you're truly suicidal, a bra could be a tool to hurt you. So they had to take away all my personal belongings. And they left me there in my pajamas and they were really worried. They kept calling, the, my daughter especially kept calling the hospital. She went into full, I call it shari mode. She went into full negotiation mode and she was calling this place in Tamarack like, look, my mom's okay. She just had a breakdown. I'm coming to get her. You have to let her out. And my kids, my kids staged a coup on day two and showed up at the hospital demanding that they release me. And, you know, the woman there her name was Marilyn. She's like, look, she's here for 72 hours. We're not letting her out. My daughter's like, okay, let's discuss this. Like, why are you not letting her out? She owns a business. She's not crazy. And my daughter found like what it's like to try and really negotiate. And she was unsuccessful, which was okay. I mean, it was okay. And she was furious. And then when they finally did let me out, Rachel and Jake came to get me. And, you know, I was a mess. I looked like I belonged to the mental hospital. My hair was, I'll give you, I'll give you a little view of it. But like, I looked like one floor with a cuckoo's nest. And, um, you know, they took me home. They, they set up the bath for me. They put on candles and music and, 
they understood like push mommy just so far and mommy's going to crack. And when I said I wanted to leave, Rachel said, I want to go with you. And we talked about it. And I said, you know, Rachel, I really appreciate it. But I think for me to get out of this, I need to be alone. I, I can't have anyone making decisions for me. I need to do this by myself. So she drove me, you know, the, actually a friend of mine drove me to the, to the airport and the kids were really supportive. Okay, mom, if this is what you need to do, go. And, you know, it, it was really, I think for, for me, it was super brave because I was a mess. I, I couldn't even pack. It was, and, you know, and then, so you asked me what happened to the kids after. So they were okay. They checked in with me. And when I came back, my daughter had gone on her own journey. She left and went to California. And my son stayed with my ex-husband. And then eventually he went to Chicago. So the kids found their own, you know, they, they had to leave too. Everybody was getting like nutty staying in Florida, which as you know, was like the epicenter of stupidity. And, you know, they left too. So what I will say about now, my kids and I are much closer now, especially my daughter and I. And I learned how much in all of this, I really liked her. You know, it's one thing to love your child. And I love both of my children with all of my heart, even with what happened, you know, prior when they were, you know, on top of me and and making me a little nutty. I found out how much I really admired both of them, especially Rachel, how much I admired her tenacity. And, you know, I, I am so in such a better place with them today because of leaving. So it was a good thing all around. And now they're, they're doing okay. My daughter moved out to Oakland and doing really well. And my son is in Chicago finding himself and I think he's going to come to New York. So we're, we're good today. We're much better. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So tell me a little bit about this journey. You know, you started in New Jersey and then it sounds like you started couch surfing, basically. You know, what was that process like? How did you decide where you were going, what your next steps were, and so forth? I am sure, as a listener, you are familiar with The Forward, the longstanding Jewish publication. Well, The Forward has a new podcast called A Bintel Brief, based on the longstanding advice column in the paper. It is now turned into an audio advice column where you can get interesting answers to fascinating questions from Gina Green, who is a movement builder, very active in the Jews of Color initiative, as well as Lynn Harris, a writer and activist, also a comedian and a former advice columnist for Glamour and other print magazines of blessed memory. A Bintel Brief, B-I-N-T-E-L is the word Bintel Brief. Give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Okay, so it was it was never a couch. It was always a bed, thank God, because I have a bad back. I did not decide where I was going until I was ready to go. So I went to New Jersey. I, I, saw, I saw my brother. I saw friends here, a couple of sets of friends. I came to this apartment in New York that I bought and needed a renovation. It was a mess. And then I was like, okay, what do I do next? I was in Boston. I'm like, where could I go and make a difference? So I called my cousins in North Carolina who had four kids and one on the way. He's Jewish. She's not, which explains the five children, sort of. And I I said, can I come visit you? And it had been a while since I saw them. So I went down to North Carolina and that's where I started this whole baking episode, started baking for the kids who had never seen a halwa. And I was, I cried like every day and the kids were there to like be with me. And then when I was ready to leave there, I was like, okay, where can I go next? There were clients in Memphis. I do business with FedEx 
And I was like, hey, guys, how do you feel about a visit? And they're like, we haven't been out of our houses in like months. I'm like, will you come out for me? They're like, yeah. So I went to Memphis and hung out with the people from FedEx and stayed with a friend of mine who works for them as well. And then I'm like, okay, where can I go next? And a very good friend of mine was in Chicago. And I'm like, well, I'll just go there. And then I can take pictures of the graduation Jake never had from Northwestern. So I'll go to Northwestern and I'll take pictures with the president of Northwestern and who's a nice Jewish boy, Morty Shapiro. So I took pictures at Northwestern and hung out with my friend, Michelle. And then I'm like, well, where do I go next? And then I called a friend in Minneapolis. Can I come and visit you in Minnesota? They're like, yeah, come. So I went to Minneapolis and then they took me up to the lake, up Lake Superior. And then I was like at a crossroads. Like, what do I do next? I have to watch my little cousin's bar mitzvah on YouTube because it wasn't going to happen in Ohio. So I called a client of mine who's become a friend. He was in Idaho. And I'm like, hey, how do you feel about a bar mitzvah? He's like, I'd love to go to a bar mitzvah. I said, well, what if I came to your place in Boise and we watched the bar mitzvah together? He's like, bring it. So I went to Boise, which happened to be the home of the company Sensi, who makes those candle warmers, those little wax warmers. And I know, and Eldon worked for Sensi, and I happened to know the owners of Sensi. So I went, we watched the bar mitzvah, and I contacted the owners who had just canceled a $2 million program with me on a cruise. And I'm like, well, what if I had dinner with him and could convince him to like move that program rather than cancel it? So called the owners of Sensi and said, let's have dinner. And they're like, okay, great. So again, not knowing what was going to happen, I made a few challah breads and met them for dinner. And I said, do you guys like bread? They're like, do we like bread? I mean, that's like, you know, cool Mormon staple. We start dinner and I pull out two different flavors of challah. And I said, before we eat this, let me teach you the prayer over the challah. They're like, okay. I mean, they like religion. So they like every religion. I pull out the bread, I do the prayer and they taste the bread. They're like, you made this? I said, yeah. They go, can you teach us? I said, absolutely. When do you want me to teach you? They said, how do you feel about tomorrow? So I said, okay. I said, how about we do a whole dinner and I teach you how to make blintzes, challah, uh, brisket, matzo ball soup, falafel. And I'm going, they're like, he's like, falafel? I love falafel. Did you say falafel? I'm like, yeah. He goes, okay, let's do it. We're going to invite some of our family over. I said, okay, great. So I go shopping and I filled up a minivan with every product you can imagine and I end up at their doorstep. And I looked like I looked like the caterer showing up at a party at their home. And we did like two hours, two and a half hours of cooking. And they were just beaming. It was so much fun. And all of this is in the book. And then at the end of the dinner, Orville, who's the owner, turns to me and goes, let's talk about that cruise. And I'm like, okay. And within five minutes, he agreed to take the money and move it to another cruise, which saved me of losing that program. And I was like, wait a minute, this guy said no to this deal all along. What was the difference in him saying yes now? And I realized it was the food. It was the company. It was the human connection. It was the in-person connection. And he said to me, Sherry, we never invite people into our home ever. This is like so unusual that we're doing this. And then I told him a lot about myself because here I am breaking through with this client who was really just a client before and now became a close friend. And I laugh and I think, well, it must have been the matzo balls. I mean, there's no other explanation, but there was a lot of like great connection. It was incredible. It made my heart sing and it made them so happy. 
So they call up their friend who used to be Jewish and converted to Mormon. And they call her up. They go, Monica, get over here. We have a Jew here making blintzes. Come on over. So she runs over with her two daughters. And she's like, could you do this for me? Could you do Shabbat at our house? I'm like, yeah. They go, come tomorrow. We'll make blintz. So I repeated the whole evening again with the neighbors. And Orville and his wife, Heidi, showed up for that dinner, too. I'm like, what are you doing here? They're like, we loved it. We want to do it again. So like here I am in the Mormon community, like bringing in Shabbat and and Monica's bringing out stuff from her childhood and her grandmother's recipes and her grandmother's plates, the Seder plate. I'm like, it was amazing. So, all right. So from Boise, I'm like, well, now what? And I was supposed to go out to Eastern Washington. But if you remember, there were fires and like it was horrible in in the Tacoma area. And I looked at my friend Eldon. I said, well, what do I do now? He goes, go to Jackson Hole. Have you ever been there? I'm like, no. He goes, go to Jackson Hole. You'll love it. And this is where the story gets interesting because I drove to Jackson Hole and on my third day there, the phone rings and it's my friend, Ruth. She's like, Shari, you want to have lunch? I'm like, Ruth, I'm not in San Diego. I'm in Jackson Hole. She said, no, no, I'm in Jackson Hole too. Let's have lunch. I'm like, okay. So I meet Ruth for lunch and Ruth just happens to own a speaker's bureau. And she said, tell me the story. What's going on? And I said, well, I started out in the mental hospital and then I went on the road and she said, Sherry, this is too good for you not to write. You have to write a book. And if you write the book, I can put you on the speaker circuit. I can help you get there, but you got to write the book. And I'm like, new career. Okay, I'll write the book. And I left Jackson Hole and I went to Salt Lake to visit friends there. And it was a rainy day. It never rains in Salt Lake. Okay. It's the driest place on earth. And it was a Sunday. So I was with Ruth like Friday. On Sunday, it's raining. And I figured, what the heck? And I pull out my computer and I started writing for 72 hours straight. I mean, like I barely left the couch. And the coincidence there is, or no coincidence, I was in the mental hospital 72 hours, and here I am writing for 72 hours, and I wrote the first nine chapters of the book, which is ridiculous. But I had it all in my head, and I needed to like regurgitate it out on paper. So I wrote the first nine chapters. I was in real time at that point, and then started writing the rest. And it was really that visit, that weird non-coincidence, as my rabbi would say, that I ended up in Jackson Hole because I was not supposed to go there. So Jackson Hole and then Salt Lake and then LA and then Phoenix and then Tucson and Sedona. And it just kind of took on a life of its own, but it was never planned. It was one city, one destination at a time. Did you have a sense that at some point you'd be returning home? Did you, did you know you'd come back? I knew I'd come back at some point. I mean, how, how long can you travel with a carry-on bag? But I didn't know when. In Minnesota, I write in the book, I had a relative send me a really difficult email telling me that I was wrong about traveling. And she said, you may be traveling, but you're really lost. You're just lost. You need to come home and work out all your issues at home. This is a mistake. And I, 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 I said to her, I'm not coming home yet. I'm not ready. So as I got happier, as I started to find myself again, I knew I would go home. I just didn't know when that would be. And the the turning point was for me, my son and my girlfriend have birthdays in October. So on October 9th, which just happened to be the day I picked, I bought a ticket on the 8th and I flew home on the 9th. 
And my son's bright girlfriend's birthday is October 16th. My son is October 20th. And I wanted to be with them on their birthdays. So that's, that's the only reason why I did it. I think I would have stayed away longer, probably the entire month of October, because Florida is so miserable in October. It was weird. I went to a psychic who talked about numbers and something, something about the number nine. The whole thing was an accident, really. Did you consider this relative's perspective from Minnesota about the notion of, you know, running away from problems versus grappling with them in your own, you know, environment? And how did you make that determination? Well, the relative is somebody who is not particularly adventurous. She's more of a homebody. And she believes that there's no place like home. Like everything can be solved at home. And there were too many things in that space, too many, for me, triggers, bad things that were happening in my house simply because I was trapped there. My therapist said that the reason why I ran was because I was trapped in that mental hospital and I felt like my rights were taken away from me and I wasn't going to be trapped in my house too. And for me to be able to heal, I had to leave. I couldn't work it out. For me, it was way too far gone for Lexapro and a therapist to get me back on track. It was, it was, I wasn't eating. I was just so sad and so depressed that I, I couldn't anymore. So Yes, you should work your problems out at home. And yeah, wherever you go, there you are. You've heard that too. But for me, being with people helps me. Being free, because I can't be trapped or controlled. So being free was what I needed. And I needed to, needed to make my own decisions. People just bring me so much joy, right? So going from house to house and bringing them some relief from COVID, the baking, the, the cheerful stuff helped them too. So was she right? Was I lost? Yeah, I probably was lost, but I was finding myself. She said, I'm running from my problems. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, the book proves that I was right because today I'm here and I'm really, I'm doing great. I don't think I would have been doing great had I stayed. So I understand her perspective. I wasn't happy about the email that she sent me. I thought it was kind of mean, but it gave me her thoughts. And it actually, you know, when someone tells me I can't do something, that's the minute I go, well, really? My whole life has been, someone tells me I can't do something. Like my father said, you'll never make any money in travel. And my response was, just watch me. So, you know, every time someone gives me a challenge, I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I mean, people have said, you'll never write that book. Oh, really? Watch me. So, you know, I've had people say, you'll never have an apartment in Manhattan. I'm like, I will. I'll find a way. I'm going to do this. So I think she helped me by telling me I was on the wrong path. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to prove to you that I'm not. You know, I love a good challenge. I love to solve a problem and I'm very creative. So I love that she sent it to me. It gave me something to put in the book that was almost like a, like a zest, you know, like my grandmother would say, like a kick in the behind to prove her wrong. And, you know, I, I love this relative. I, I, I love her. She's, she's a wonderful person and she didn't mean to hurt me. And I'm glad she sent it. And we're, we have a great relationship. You know, I, I just think life is too short to not work it out with people. If something's not going well, even if you're right, just be wrong for a minute. Apologize or say, hey, I'm sorry that this happened in our relationship. Let's be okay. Be that catalyst. You know, because don't wait for the other person to work it out. It, it, it's, it, life is too short for that. Did you ever determine, and I'm sure this has been a big part of the work that you've done, but what ultimately had really sent you running? Was it 
just that you had gotten too caught up in your career and your identity had become so wrapped up in that? Or were there other things that were going on that precipitated it? I really think part of it is the relationship I was having with my children. It was tough. Two kids, like one kid still in college trying to graduate in a pandemic. One kid out of school, not figuring out what she wanted to do with herself. So as a mother, you've got grief because you're only as happy as your least happy child, right? So I was like feeling so responsible that they weren't on the right path or they were unhappy. So that was part of it. My ex-husband had had a massive heart attack the December right before COVID and was like in the hospital up in New York for two months. At one point, you know, they had to revive him a few times. He needed quadruple bypass and he was just really a mess. I felt guilty about divorcing him and then guilty that he was like almost dead. He's a good guy. We just were better off as like brother and sister, but he's a wonderful guy. And I felt terrible for him. I felt so awful that here he is down and out and like, you know, so sick in the hospital. He had come up to visit friends. He's from Florida too. And here he is in the hospital at Cornell Weill Medical Center, like on life support at one point, you know, terrible, absolutely terrible on dialysis. And, you know, he's, he's, much better now, but here he was trying to recover and he was in bad shape. My kids were not in good shape. My girlfriend was having issues with her house, with mold, with leaking. And then this, and yeah, I think mostly it was loss of identity. Here I was building up a business. We had had our best year ever. And here I was trying to figure out, do I lay people off? Do I, what the hell do I do? You know, I'm losing my identity and I have people on unemployment and and stimulus money and we're refunding money left and right. I had one cruise line who demanded I repay them $150,000 worth of commissions they had paid out that I still owe them to this day. And it was just a mess. I could have handled any one of those things independently, but it was so many things at once. And I just, I'm an escapist. I just wanted to run and I didn't know to where. So the pills were like, I'll just take pills and that'll cure everything. And we all know that doesn't solve anything. So I knew before I took a whole bottle of pills, I needed to save myself from myself. And that was the best I could do was to run. But not everybody runs. Some people solve it at home. Some people, you know, they disappear figuratively and and literally um, just disappear. I mean, like suicides were really, and they probably still are really high for people who don't know how they're going to get themselves out of financial problems and job loss and loss of relatives. I mean, we don't really talk about all of the suicides, but I guarantee you there have been many in COVID for people who didn't know how to cope. I mean, fortunately, financially, I'm okay. If I wasn't, that would have been another story, but you know, it's hard. It was hard for me. It was really hard. I identify with that business. And I identify as a mom and I, you know, identify as so many things. And I felt like they were all falling apart at once. How did everything work with COVID? Because it was a time when people weren't really traveling or taking in other people into their homes and things like that. Were you just going to people who were, were a little bit more lenient or how did that work? I don't know. You know, like nobody said no to me, which was really weird. I mean, I guess I just said, hey, can I come? And they're like, sure. Like, I don't know that I would have let people in my house. Right. But the way I did it. I, first of all, I took 12 COVID tests. So I took a test in the destination I was in before I went to the next one. I was constantly testing. I was wearing a mask. I was wearing a shield and I flew first class for like $79, like everywhere I went. So was it completely safe? Of course not. But I was like in a, a little bit of a bubble. And when I went to these people's homes, we weren't out 
dining. I think I went to that one restaurant with Orville, but again, in a bubble. And he had had COVID. But yeah, I thought it was a little weird. They all let me in, right? But I convinced them that I was safe. I guess, you know, partly I think they were all so desperate for human contact too. You know, and I've, I've got multiple personalities. Like, so when I show up, I'm bringing like a whole band with me because I, I entertain people. I'm like, hey, let's do this. Let's play a game. Let's bake. You know, so I was bringing a lot of, I think, you know, joy and also craziness into their homes um, and giving them something to do. So it was good. You know, and I, and I hope I didn't overstay my welcome anywhere. I know like with my friend Eldon, I was there nine days. I think he would have been happier if it was four. But I didn't know what to do with the fires in Washington. I didn't know where the heck to go. So I had to like reroute and replan. And sometimes I stayed in hotels, like in Jackson Hole, I was in a hotel. In LA, I was in a hotel. And the protocols were incredible. Like there were very few services going on. Like they didn't come and clean your room. There was no room service. There were you know no restaurants operating. So it was pretty safe. I don't know. I mean, in retrospect, would I do it again? I don't know. I mean, it was pretty crazy, which is what makes the book interesting that I did something that people can't imagine that I did because they wouldn't have done it, right? But I don't know. I just, I just did it because I'm impulsive. <laughs> what was your favorite place to go that maybe, you know, you would want to go back and spend more time in? Um, I think, first of all, I liked all of the national park stuff. I mean, I loved Yellowstone, Bryce, Zion. I thought that was, that was fascinating. I, I would go back to all of those. I think Jackson Hole was like the neatest little town, the most peaceful place, the place where I got the most healing was Sedona. Sedona. I was just there a couple months ago with a group of college students. Yeah. I mean, the hike, I'm not a hiker. You know, I have like leg and back problems, but I was hiking. Like, Did you, I, did you do Cathedral Rock? I did every rock. <laughs> That's like a really tough hike where you're like climbing up the I, I the went over there, but we didn't go up it. I did like the teapot and we did some gentle hikes. I think when I was with my friend, Michelle, who's a total kook, and she did some of the tougher stuff while I was in the spa. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go get a massage, a colonic, a facial, like you go do that. But I just loved the energy, the vortexes. And the, there's pictures of me in the book just sitting in like yoga position, like taking in the swirling air. That was amazing. The other thing I will say that was absolutely my top two was when I went glamping. And I haven't camped or glamped since I was a Girl Scout. And I found this like tent resort. I say resort loosely. It's 10 tents with king size beds, an outhouse and a, and a sun shower. And I drove up to this rock. It was the tent and I crawled into it and I was like, Oh my God, I'm by myself in the woods with a flashlight, a headlamp, some hand sanitizer and a jug of water and a little like fire pit and some wood by myself. Like, okay, this is a test. Can I do this? Like no electricity. All right, I'm going to give it a shot. And I made myself a fire and I sat there and I was at that point in full writing mode. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to hear anyone. I just want to be by myself. It was unbelievable for somebody who likes to be around people. because I love to be around people. I would do it again in a heartbeat. So in my insanity, I ended up buying a conversion van 
through a guy in Salt Lake. And over the phone, he went and bought it for me. And he is almost done like completely decking it out into a little tiny home for me so I can do this again. Because that was my, that was unbelievable. So it's my van will live out in California somewhere or out in Utah somewhere. And then I will take it on little trips and go into the woods and the national parks and, you know, be a Girl Scout again. So, I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, I, I would have never thought of doing that, but I'm doing it. So a lot of good came out of this for me, a lot. That's amazing. What, uh, what was a place you didn't get to go that you would want to go to? I totally wanted to go to Lake Tahoe. And right now it's so sad because everything's on fire. I would like to go to Tahoe. I want to go to Yosemite. Someday, you know, like do, do a lot more of Wyoming. And, and I want to go to Montana. Yes. Really want to go to Montana. I want to go to, um, what is it called? Big Sky? I want to go to Big Sky. I want to go to Glacier. Absolutely that. And do more of California. Like I'd like to, my daughter is out and I told you in Oakland, I'd like to take the van out there with her and drive down the coast and take her to San Simeon and Hearst Castle and, you know, all of that beautiful area in Northern California. Go Maybe go to wine country with her. So yeah, there's, there's some things I want to do. I think I only have five states left I haven't visited. Some of them I don't need to visit, but I've been all over and I, I want to do it again. I want to experience it again. So Colorado, it's just the country for people who spend their time and their money traveling outside this country because they think it's exotic. And it is. There's so much that's exotic. I mean, if you haven't been to Zion, cancel your trip to Europe. Go to Zion. You'll flip. I mean, Utah is the most incredible state on earth. It just is. But we don't take the time to experience our own country because we think it's not interesting enough. It's too American. You know, that's nonsense. Go and visit your country. Go to Maine. Go to New England. It's, it's gorgeous. Go do that before you're exploring Iceland. Go see what's here. There's so much here. You know, and there's so many Jewish communities here too. You know, if you just drive around, there's so many that will take you into their fold and will be thrilled for you to show up. And I have found that. I've tried. I've gone to synagogues, not on this trip, but in diff- on different trips. I'm like, well, where's the synagogue in Charleston? It's amazing. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Yep. I've done that as well. I, I love that. Love that. If you're out in Montana sometime, there's a wonderful Chabad out there. I actually interviewed the rabbi on this show. He's an amazing guy who's adopted like five children with special needs. And he's an incredible person. He's been written up all over the place. So worth checking that out. But there, I mean, yeah, there's a Chabad pretty much in every town. So. <laughs> yeah, I would. you know what? I think that Jews connect with Jews no matter where they are. I've done it in Europe. I've done it all over the world. I found like the Jewish community in in the strangest places. And I've been to the synagogue in Rome and I've been to the Jewish border in in Paris. And I I love to do that. And I particularly love Prague. You know, I went to the synagogues in Prague and I went into the store. I I bought a, I'd show you, but we're only on audio, but I bought the most spectacular Seder plate in Prague that I bought 20 something years ago to save for my kids. And now I have it in my apartment in New York. I love Judaica. Love it. I love to buy it. I love to display it. But yeah, the, the communities in the United States are incredible. And I can't wait to go back and visit more of them and have Shabbat dinner with random people and, and have people from other places come and have Shabbat dinner with me in New York. Like if you're in New York, come to my house. I'll make you blintzes. Come. <laughs> Tell me about New York. How did you end up there from Florida? That you know, That's not where you were. Well, I always wanted to come back to New York. Like always wanted to have a place here, but couldn't afford it for a long time. And then 
when business was really good, I thought, you know what? It's time to do that. My kids are grown and gone. It's time for me to come back and have a place here. So I looked and looked and looked and found this place in the Upper West Side. It's in a building from 1890. And it was a complete gut job, like a total, total disaster. And um, I couldn't renovate it for a year. And then I spent the past months with a contractor redoing it. And I love it here. There's some amazing synagogues in the area. Redef Shalom is my favorite. I think it's stunning. I wanted to be in a place with Jews. You know, I wanted to be back with my people because in Florida, I have some, but I wanted to be with my New York Jews, you know, because I, I love the culture here. I love the people here. I love the restaurants. I, I love everything about it. So here I am. Like last night, I made three dozen blintzes and I'm going to give them out for people for, for breakfast. Like here, have my blintzes. So, you know, if I can share that with people, I do in my little place and inviting everybody over to share it with me. I, I, I love that. So come, come to New York. That sounds awesome. Do you, so do you go back and forth or do you, uh, you mostly stay there? No, I, I can only be here six months. I will be back in Florida in the winter and I'll be here in the spring and fall. And in the summers, I think I want to take that uh, conversion van and go, uh, go running around a little bit. So see, I mean, my life has gotten really interesting. And I think the lack of business has given me freedom because when I was working full time, I, I didn't have time to do any of this. So, but I can work from anywhere. Just give me a computer and a cell phone and I can, I can work from anywhere. And I hope business comes back. I love my clients. I love doing what I do and we'll see what happens. COVID has given us, you know, a hiccup and we'll see what and who survives in terms of business. I, I, I miss the cruise industry terribly, but I have to be patient just like everyone else. And it sounds like thankfully you did well enough before COVID right. to be able to tide over. Exactly. Yeah. I did. So I'm so grateful for that. I know many people don't have that luxury and I don't take it for granted for one minute. I am not the least bit entitled. And I I say I'm a good saver. I spend when I when I want to, but I'm a great saver and I've I've saved. And I have a great financial planner. His name is George. And he always said to me, Sherry, my job is not to make you rich, it's to keep you from being poor. And he's done a good job of keeping me from being poor. So I'm grateful to him. His mother, and I have a dedication to her in the book, his mother, Hannah, is a Holocaust survivor. And I write in the book that she's gone through real atrocity and, and, and death and disaster. Mine doesn't compare at all. And I honor her because I know that she's been through so, so much. And, um, you know, people ask me, why is Hannah in your book? Why did you dedicate some of it to her? And I'm like, that's a survivor. I survived COVID, big deal. I survived business losses, whatever. But she and those like her survived real tragedy. And I wanted to honor her. She's already in her 90s. She turned 90. I went to her 90th birthday party. She's an amazing woman. So my shout out to Hannah Temel, the greatest person on the planet in my mind, and her son, George, who kept me from being poor. What do you think you've learned about yourself through all of this? all these travels and the journey and the challah and the people and you know, everything that you've gone through, you know, what, what has that taught you about yourself? I learned that my identity is so much more than my business and shame on me for thinking that that's who I was because COVID gave me the time to discover or rediscover all these things about myself that I truly loved. Like Broadway is one of them. So I've been up in New York kind of connecting with actors and musicians and stage managers. And the coolest thing is um, I found a restaurant and I've, I've become very good friends with the owner and we're putting together like a Broadway cabaret space 
in the downstairs of his restaurant. And I'm doing, uh, I have a patio here that I've named Barcelona because it looks like Barcelona. So I'm going to be doing Broadway breakfast at Barcelona and having performers come and have breakfast with me. I'm going to make them the most Jewish breakfast on the planet and talk to them about their experiences. And we're going to do like a webcast series of that. How are you meeting all these performers? Well, I know a lot of them anyway, because I've always connected with Broadway and I've made a lot of friends over the years. So now I'm making even more friends. So like Danny Burstein, who did the revival of Fiddler and, and is in Moulin Rouge, has agreed to do Broadway Breakfast. And um, my friend Lisa Brescia, who starred in Mamma Mia and Wicked and Dear Evan Hansen is going to do one for me. And I just I have a lot of, you know, very talented Broadway friends and they're introducing me to other talented Broadway friends. Brian Stokes Mitchell lives in my neighborhood. We're hoping to get him to do a benefit concert at the restaurant. So, you know, it's given me back the things I always loved. And I'm doing that. So I have time. And writing this book, I never knew I was an author. I knew I liked to write, but I never thought I could write a book. You know, everyone says, I'll write a book, but they don't do it. So like that was a, a gift. So as much as COVID was a nightmare, to me, it was an incredible gift, a time where I could like step back and not be so involved in work and making money. I've never made less money, right? But it gave me such joy. I even taught a class at a, at a university while I was in Jackson Hole in my pajamas. You know, I connected with a, with a professor and she said, sure, you could teach a class on entrepreneurship. So I did things I never thought I'd do. So I am so joyful and grateful. And like Rabbi Andrew would say, there are no coincidences. So COVID isn't a coincidence for me. COVID was something that in my life, I don't want to say it was meant to be because it's a horrible, horrible thing, but it gave me more than it took from me personally. You know, it's taken so much from so many people and it's horrible, but it gave me things that, you know, as much as I am sad for the people who were lost and the jobs lost and every tragedy, I am happy that I, I've been here to bring other people joy and to give back in a lot of ways. So, you know, what am I going to do? I have to accept it and do the best I can with it and be there for people who have lost people, you know, be there and give back in some way and help them. I, I feel like our job, if we've been successful, if we've found joy, our job as Jews, as people is to, to give. So I hope that I leave you with that. I hope people will book you can go on Amazon. You can go on www.fromhelltohala.com. Um, you can go in your local bookstore and beg for them to carry it. I hope people will get it. I think you find a lot of humor and a lot of joy from it. And I thank you, Ari. Thank you, Shao. You have a, an amazing energy. Uh, just you know, pops through the screen. Such an infectious joy of your own. It, it means even more in the context of knowing you know, where you came from and what you've been through. You know, you talked earlier about social media and how everyone, you, that even you were posting positive, you know, memes and, and things on there. And just to show you, you know, how, maybe how, uh, you know, shallow and, and fake that can be because you were going through so much difficulty, but to know that you were in that place and nevertheless, that you have such incredible sense of enthusiasm and really an infectious joy means all the more, uh, in, in contrast to where you've been. I have found that people will listen to you when you're sad for a little bit of time. Nobody wants to be burdened with anybody's misery. And I realized if I was going to tell everyone how unhappy I was, they would just walk away. So I was posting pictures of my feet by my pool saying, hey, today's a great day. When I inside, I was feeling horrible. 
absolutely horrible. And yeah, I posted along the way everything that was joyful. I never posted sadness, misery. I never did. Other people did. This stinks. This is awful. And I was like, we're going to get through this. Even when I felt lousy, you know, so fake it till you make it. You know, the other thing is I had a great therapist and she was kind of telling me how proud she was of me, which helped me. And I looked in the, she was telling me, look in the mirror and just say, you can do this. You know, for everybody who's suffering with any kind of sadness, anxiety, depression, I get you. I know where you are. I have been there. And all I can tell you is dig deep, find something, even if it's a few minutes a day, do something that brings you some joy. And if you keep doing it, eventually you will actually have real joy, but it's, it's hard work and no one's going to pull you out of it, but you don't rely on other people that they can't do it for you. It's inside of you. They can't help you. It's not like you're drowning in the actual water and I give you a, 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 a tube and I say, here, grab on, I'll pull you out. Yeah, that's great when you're actually drowning. But when you're drowning inside, nobody can throw you a life raft. Nobody can do it. They can listen. They can invite you over. But if you keep telling them how miserable you are, you won't be invited back. And then you'll be lonelier than you were before. So fake it till you make it. Smile. Believe it or not, if you smile, you find happiness. If you laugh, even when you don't feel like it, you start actually laughing. It's true, you know, and smile. Look at yourself in the mirror. And if you're not smiling, put it on. Because when you smile, you naturally release endorphins and become happier. You know, it's, it's, it's science. It's not stupid, shari, you know, bubba misa. It's science. So smile when you're on the phone. Smile when you're walking around your house looking in the mirror. Just smile and sing. Even if you are lousy at it, just sing. Even if you stink. Sing, be happy, bake, do something, and you will find your way. And if you have to take meds, take meds. I, I take Lexapro. I mean, it helps. <laughs> there we go. Sherry Wallach from Hell to Hell. Thank you so much for bringing your joy and bringing your energy. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ari. You're a pleasure. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.